Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! From the second floor of the AC building here at Bethel University, it's election shock therapy. We're back. We're all here. Ooh. Yeah, I'm here this time. Mitch is not flying <laughs> whatever skies. That's true. <laughs> yep. The friendly or unfriendly skies. I don't think there's a friendly skies yeah. exactly. No, you can no longer fly friendly Southwest skies. Thing. Um, with Southwest, I will say it's mostly, in my, in my experience, fairly friendly. Okay. Um, but that's not their motto, right? Like, they have a different... Yes. Yeah, their... Uh, what is their motto, actually? Is motto, their motto is, you want to go to where? Well... <laughs> <laughs> you want a reserved seat? What? Right, yes. Yeah, there's no, there's no reserved seats. But uh, in, in, in defense of Southwest, um, they have one of the best programs for, um, for flying, uh, for, for, for the frequent flyers, where mm-hmm. basically my wife and I, we have buy one, get one free, and that's, that's a pretty great deal. So, yeah. For the record, Southwest... Is not a sponsor. Election They're not a sponsor, therapy. but I will. But we're open to it. But I will free. say that's right. <laughs> but I will we say good things for them. I will say good things about that's them. Right. Yep. And they do. You do get two free bags. So that's true per person. And yep. And I use those every time. Yeah. Right. G- gentlemen, what would be your dream sponsor for this podcast? Ooh. Ooh. That's a that's a tough. Wait, do we get perks with the sponsor? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Free yeah. swag from the from the. Oh, from wow. the like if it's a mattress company, they'll send you a mattress to try. Oh, out. We, don't want, <laughs> we, we don't want a mattress. I mean, I, I have mean, a mattress. You have, to, you have to have like a car company then or something. I yeah, mean, a car company. Like, you know, nice. I want Tesla to sponsor us or something. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, you, um, I just saw this uh, in the news yesterday. Tesla hasn't made money yet as a company. I really? believe that. Wow. Yeah. So the, you're saying they're probably not looking to sponsor our podcast. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just noting that their stock has dropped quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, maybe Apple then. I'll take I'll take Apple as a sponsor. All right. Apple would be, be nice. good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I take I take free computers and programs and whatever else they want to get. But you also have to you also have to um, rock the uh, um, what's the what's the Apple the Apple Home is that the oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 voluntary listening device you can right, place in right. your home. That's yeah. right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, Sam. What do you want as your uh, your sponsor? I don't think don't, they, say, don't say me undies. No, no, no. I don't think they, I don't think they <laughs> would sponsor. But I don't see why. Not. Like if we're if I'm thinking about what are the perks I would want, like mm-hmm. I actually would. I have, I have a lifelong dream of wanting season tickets to like a sport. Oh, like, oh, I don't care. Like, okay. I would love for the Minnesota Twins to sponsor and just have yeah. season tickets to the yeah. Twins. Like, that would be really fun. Yeah. I would take the Vikings or the Timberwolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm really a Wolves hockey fan. My, so. I, I, I love the NBA. Yeah, wouldn't that yeah. be fun? Yeah. So yeah. that that would be the sponsor I'm looking for, and I think they're really interested in in sponsoring a really low level political <laughs> science podcast. Like, we would we would do some sports analytics if they ask us to. Oh sure. Yeah. We would for oh, yeah. sure do yeah. some sports. You guys analytics. have taken And if the twins are listening, right we would even share a set of season tickets. We oh, could yeah. do that. Oh, yeah. just go, like, oh, 20 yeah. games I'm each. not That'd going to eighty one games. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. yeah. And I mean they would get you know obviously we could do you know every time we went to a game we could mention it at the start of the podcast. That's right. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Went to a, you know went to the Vikings game. We could podcast from Target Field occasionally. Really if you're one of those teams. Is Spielman still with the Vikings? Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, Mr. Spielman, if you're listening to this, uh, we would be more than pleased to accept a humble sponsorship from uh, from the Minnesota Vikings. They don't so even be have pretty to be humble. really good seats. 
if it's the Vikings. If it's the Twins or the Timberwolves, I'd like like good seats would yeah. be better. Vikings would just be seats. Wow. Be okay. Man. Come on. If you just dropped what sixty million dollars on Kirk Cousins, you can, yeah. you can throw just a little bit our way. Or ask Kirk. Maybe Kirk because he was in DC. Kirk, if you want to sponsor us, yeah. <laughs> we'll take a Kirk Cousins sponsorship too. That works. We will be their biggest homers. That's right. That's right. And where did Kirk Cousins go to college? Uh, Michigan State. Okay, yeah, we should and probably not mention where we all went. No, but 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 they're they're a big rival with who? In state rival with uh, that school up north. Okay, and and you two are both Ohio State fans. We're That's also correct. a rival with what team? That school up north. See the the enemy of your. Wait, how does that work? Yeah, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So there, okay. you guys are okay. you guys are basically like. Yeah. But the friend of like your friend is roommates. not your enemy. <laughs> you're wondering. Right, right, right. <laughs> we'll see by the end of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Wow. Um, we uh, we spent uh, Mitch while you were gone. Yep. Uh, Andy and I spent a considerable amount of time breaking down um, the panoply of departures yes. uh, from yep. Trump's cabinet. Yep. And no sooner did we hit post uh, <laughs> than we got two more. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So let's let, let's 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 keep up with uh, let, let's keep up with the goings on. Yep. And uh, Andy, who has left the White House? And while you talk about this, I'm going to take a sharpie and color in our thermometer because it keeps going up as we. Have All right. Yeah. Once once Ooh. once we hit our goal, um, then. <laughs> a pizza party, right? Yeah, Isn't exactly. Sure. Yeah, well, can, we, can we make that happen? We should have that thermometer. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, since we last talked to you just a mere week ago, um, and kind of to reinforce the point we made last week, that these is an unusually high-level departures. Yeah. Um, the National Security Advisor is gone. H.R. McMaster has been um, pushed out, it seems like. Not necessarily directly fired, but certainly pushed out. Um, and he's been replaced by John Bolton, who is famous for being um, the non-confirmed U.N. ambassador under the, fir- the second George Bush. Um, Effectively and, a point. He was a recess appointment. Right. He was a recess appointment because he couldn't get him confirmed, basically, right. and by the Senate, which was controlled by the Republicans back then. So, again, this is kind of um, you know impressive. Um, Bolton's known for being pretty war-happy, um, and so this is, seems like a switch from McMaster. And then the just last night... Um, after much sort of uh, speculation to this effect, um, David Shulkin was pushed out or fired, really, as um, head of the v- Veterans Affairs. And Trump has announced he intends to replace him with his um, doctor, who is a military doctor, who's the doctor for Obama as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like a very good doctor, but doesn't have any real experience in running a bureaucracy. Um, and this is interesting because, I mean, as I was looking at the speculation about who might be next, and that is always a relevant question in the Trump administration, Ben Carson is said to be on the ropes. And Ben Carson's. Um, an interesting comparison to Jackson, the, the, the pointing at VA, because he's also a highly qualified doctor um, who's not qualified in running a government agency. He's not doing a very good job, by all accounts, of running housing and urban development. Trump's frustrated with him and yet is making an eerily similar appointment um, that seems likely to lead to similar places. But we'll see. I have a couple questions for you guys. But just to tack on to what Andy said first, uh, John Bolton, uh, who was a recess appointment as U.N. ambassador uh, mm-hmm. under George W. Bush, um, Andy's not kidding when he describes him as, as war-happy or hawkish, <laughs> um, yeah, as yeah. you might say, in the uh, foreign policy He's community. a hawk among hawks. I mean, um, he, yeah, he's a red-tailed hawk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, um, now, admittedly, uh, his last few years have been spent being a Fox News commentator. And you can say a lot of things as a commentator <laughs> that you can't say as national security advisor. We sure hope. But, sure. One hopes. But as a commentator, he has said that um, the only reasonable way to deal with the Iranian nuclear program is to bomb them first. Mm-hmm. Uh, that a first strike against North Korea would be the would be the wisest choice. 
Uh, he has never, unlike many members of the Bush administration, he has never wavered in his support right. for the invasion of Iraq um, in mm -hmm. 2003. So at least we can give him some logical consistency there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. if we think that the invasion was a mistake, he has not learned anything from that mistake. Right. Um, he still supports that invasion. Um, let's see, where else? Um, he does differ from his boss, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. in the fact that he wanted to confront Russia militarily over their seizure of Crimea in Ukraine. Right. And... What uh, what potential places? What else does John Bolton want to fight? He wants to like, fight lots of places. <laughs> As you're talking, I'm just wondering: is there any question to which the answer is not like a military strike? <laughs> I mean, like for John Bolton, that's what I'm wondering. Uh, he's also, and, and I should say, in addition to being a hawk, he is a unilateral hawk. Right. Yeah. right. He's good with us um, going we, it alone. Um, as opposed yeah. to some hawks, I would, I would count John McCain in this category, mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. want to use our allies to mobilize right. for right. Um, our, our foreign policy adventures. Uh, John Bolton is very skeptical of multilateralism, very skeptical of using our allies, mm -hmm. and famously skeptical of the UN, the agency to which he was a uh, ambassador. Um, and yep. this most famous quote that he'll probably be somewhere in his um, in his in his uh, obituary is that he said that you could lop off ten floors of the UN building in New York and no one would notice. <laughs> so um, this is not somebody who yep. believes in international institutionalism, right? Yeah, that's fair. Okay, thanks. Thanks for the uh, chip that in. Um, so we've lost, uh, so we, we, we've got sort of a, a, a transition in mm -hmm. veterans affairs. Donald Trump appointed his personal doctor. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I like the way you framed that, Andy. Is this a function of Donald Trump not having a deep bench when it comes to Washington associate associates? Uh, I think for sure that's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think there's definitely I think there's probably several things at work. I mean, what part of it is um, he doesn't really know who the experts are. Um, I think part I think this was evident um, in some ways from the beginning. I mean, just that he was often talking about appointing people. I mean, Ben Carson is a classic example. Mm -hmm. you know, somebody who is not particularly well qualified to run um, this kind of institution, but it's somebody that Trump was aware of, and so he tapped him. Um, mm -hmm. This was also mm -hmm. a way for him to sort of bring in some of his rivals. I mean, one of the things to think about with Trump is, um, I think one of the ways to understand Trump uh, is that Trump is is always campaigning. For him, the campaign right. to to be in to be campaigning is to be governing, um, and that's essentially right. what what he's about. Mm -hmm. And so, in many ways, um, a way to understand sort of the Ben Carson or you know similar appointments is just to say this was him trying to shore up um, his 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 base, right? Trying to mm -hmm. shore up um, voters. Um, mm -hmm. I think in the same way. Then now, now that we're further in, um, I think in addition to him not knowing a lot of people uh, to begin with, and to him thinking in, sort of in campaign mode mm -hmm. all the time, there's also fewer and fewer people who want to work for him. Um, okay. So I think there uh, there's a lot fewer people who are going to be willing to step forward and want to be in there. And I think you know it's, mm -hmm. it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see to see why that's the case. I mean, right. with what you've already talked about, um, you know, why would you want to go work for somebody who has pushed out so many people or fired so many people? Um, sometimes in very public and humiliating ways um, mm -hmm. when you probably have other options. Um, you know, you could go work for an interest group. You could go, mm -hmm. um, you could mm -hmm. even go back into the industry that you were originally from. Right. And mm -hmm. You could go be right. a doctor. You could go be um, somebody who runs a company or something right. like that. Um, mm -hmm. Why would you go be part of this, um, be, be part of this administration? So I'm sure that's also playing um, a pretty substantial role in the kind of people that he's, he's tapping for these positions at this point too. Mm-hmm. I'll speculate here for a minute. I mean, I think there's um, just as I'm thinking through sort of some of the Trump appointments. I mean, there's a certain logic to it, right? 
Um, I, I don't think it's a, ultimately a very good or successful logic, but I think there is a certain logic. One is, I mean, it's about loyalty, right? I mean, he really wants people yeah. who he feels comfortable with. He feels are loyal to him. He obviously likes this doctor. The doctor said very good things about his health, which, you know, hopefully are accurate. I mean, like this doctor does seem to be a good doctor. So um, I'm glad the president's healthy. Right. But um, but it's you know, he, he trusts this guy. Right. So I think that's yes. part of it. Yeah. I also think there's some kind of like associational thing going on for Trump in the sense that he thinks in terms of like what's important about a position. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's going wrong with it? And let's get somebody who has some kind of connection to that. And so if I can just speculate about a few of his appointments, many of which aren't working out very well. I mean, Rex Tillerson, who he fired, right, mm-hmm. um, was a CEO. He, he knew he had international business contacts. He wasn't really qualified to run the State Department and didn't do a very good job of that. Right. Um, but Trump thinks in terms of foreign relations, the important thing is about business relations, about how do you how do you make those connections? How do you make America prosperous? Right. And Tillerson probably seemed to him like somebody who's well qualified to do that. Ben Carson at Housing Urban Development. Again, no background for that. He's a surgeon. He's a great brain surgeon, but not a great administrator and not someone who has a background in that. But again, you kind of think in terms of like, well, this is about minority housing, right? And Ben Carson's a minority. So you kind of make an associational thing. And I wonder if that's yeah. not part of what's going on. Now we have the VA and part of their issues, like we're not serving veterans very well in terms of health care. I have this doctor. I trust him. Let's put him in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Betsy DeVos, she, like, she's big on vouchers, right? I'm mm-hmm. I'm a Republican. I favor vouchers, so let's put her in there. Does she well, Is she well qualified? No, not really. Um, is she really conversant in those issues? No, not really. But there's this association, right, of she's in the, the right category, and therefore she gets stuck in there, right? So I think, you know, as I think about the Trump appointments, that's one of the ways I mm-hmm. think about it is that yeah. it seems like he thinks in terms of that, those associations. So I say that to say, I mean, it's not like this is random. There is a logic. I just don't think it's a logic that's particularly successful for good governance. I do want to push back just a little bit on what you guys are saying, though, because, and, I'm, <clears throat> and this is maybe an unfair characterization of what the two of you have just said. But one could hear what you just what what you both just said and take away from this that uh, Trump is sort of sitting in the Oval Office, staring up at the ceiling and thinking, "Hmm, who am I going to appoint for the next Secretary of Veterans? I don't like the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. I need to appoint somebody else. Who do I know?" We know that that's not how the White House works. Right. Uh, he has a staff. He has a um, a chief of staff who who governs a group of people who are bringing him names. And who are who are sort of thinking about the pot- uh, potential replacements, right? right. As he's instructed mm-hmm. them to. He, this 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 job of sort of headhunting is not entirely on the president here. Um, so it's somewhere along the line, uh, his own personal doctor probably beat out other potential names, right? I'm I'm going to push back against that and say I don't think so. I mean I'm not sure that's how it's working right now. I mean, that is what you've described is the way it traditionally works. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the administration of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, whoever else, right? Yes. Um, I'm not convinced that's how it's working. And there's a lot of evidence that John Kelly is one of the people, the chief of staff is one of the people Trump increasingly doesn't trust. He's not, he chafes under the order that Kelly tries to impose, including that kind of order. And he's trying to work around him. There's even speculation. He might fire Kelly and not appoint a chief of staff that he might just sort of run it alone. Right. It was just, Reading that this morning, right? So, no. What would that not, What would that mean? Uh, other than well, probably I'll come back to that. But just I mean, like to sort of finish that point, okay. right? I mean, so I'm not sure. Like I mean, he tweeted Jackson as an appointment. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that got run by Kelly, right? I mean, he right. may well have fired Shulkin, tweeted that, and it may be. I, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked to learn in Kelly's memoir someday <laughs> that when he found out about what Ronnie Jackson being appointed was when we found out about it. I mean. He may have told him. I mean, he may have had the courtesy to tell his chief of staff first, but he may not have. I mean, that would not that would not at all shock me. Um, so I, I guess the your your hypothetical that you were rejecting, right? The president's just sort of sitting there thinking, "Who do I know?" 
I, I'm not sure that's actually wrong. I mean, it, mm. it might be. I hope it's wrong. I hope you're right. But but I'm not 100% confident about that. Um, what would it mean I if you fired the chief of staff? I think that would be kind of a, a big mess. But I could see him <laughs> trying it and seeing, like, let's be innovative. It well, seems to me like that would be a, like, uh, a Lovecraftian level of chaos and madness. <laughs> Which I, I guess I guess I, if, I, if I can sort of like jump in on, <laughs> yeah, on, on sure, that point and kind of come back to yep. the Kelly yep. um, point, but uh, as far as as far as what would that look like without a chief of staff? I think in some ways that would look like um, Clinton's White House um, at the beginning. Mm. So mm-hmm. if you think about mm-hmm. Clinton's White, so if you think about Clinton's White House yeah. for the first two yeah. years, in many ways he tried to function um, without sort of the structured hierarchical. Traditional order, yeah. traditional order that had been um, yep. that many presidents had yep. functioned with, um, and sort of the the language that people use is Clinton tried to have a spokes the wheel, quote unquote, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. style White House where everybody had access to him. They didn't have to go through the chief of staff. Yep. Um, he yep. has sort of tried to have direct access with all the different branches and parts of of, of, of his staff, and it just was a disaster. And, and the um, article I was reading used that exact spokes of the wheel analogy yeah, for how exactly. Trump likes to think about it. Right. And so, yeah. And so, I mean, so Clinton's first two years are generally regarded by scholars as just a complete disaster. Um, And if you look back, I mean, this was when the Republicans Mm -hmm. were able to retake the House um, because many argue that things were going so badly in the Clinton White House. Um, He made a number of very sort of poor moves um, in in any and all sorts of areas. He was Mm -hmm. he was unsuccessful. And, for example, in getting health care passed, things like that. And so I think we would just see all of the problems of the Trump White House. um, Mm hmm. In some ways, I mean, maybe there's an argument to be made that we're already seeing that. I mean, yeah. you know, I think that's the argument that you're making, but um, but I think that's the analogy. And sort of if history is a guide, um, yeah. it doesn't go well. Right. <laughs> this is this is not a successful way to organize a White House. Um, and what made Clinton successful is abandoning it, um, is basically right. saying mm-hmm. we need the structure, we need the order, mm-hmm. we have to have the mm-hmm. sort of top-down, you go through the chief of staff, you go through the, the right. high-ranking folks in the White House, and that's how you get to, to the president and organize ideas mm-hmm. and, and policies. Um, so, uh, but then, uh, to go back to the, uh, to the other yeah, topic, yeah. Then, <laughs> how, how do these ideas get sort of yeah. floated? Um, I, I guess my, impre- and may, again, maybe this, is, maybe this is wrong, but I kind of wonder if the situation is a little bit of both. Like, I wonder if mm-hmm. names aren't brought to Trump. I, I would imagine that they are. Like, here's names yeah. of people. Um, but then the guiding factor, I think, for Trump and his decision-making is often more what Andy is describing, um, is more along the lines of, who do I know? Who do I trust? What's sort of the association that I have with this person? So they may have mm-hmm. brought maybe two or three other names to him, and they're like, these people yeah. actually know what what's going on, right? And you should right. listen to them. And then Trump is sort of like, but I, I, don't but, care. I, know, I but I know this guy, but I know this guy, so I don't care about like whatever you know yeah. resume that you're bringing me right. for right. Um, for this other for these other people because that doesn't that ma- doesn't matter as much to me as the fact that I know this guy and I think he's loyal. Yeah, yeah. To inject a little bit of political science into this. Mm-hmm. Um, Trying to remember now, uh, um, what the, who the author is Alexander George, as I recall, oh, yeah. has a book from back from like the I think early eighties mm-hmm. um, on the use of the or, the organization and information style of the presidency. Mm-hmm. So uh, the classic example is Eisenhower, and, and I should mention Professor Bramson is drinking out of a I like Ike <laughs> mug today. Um, but Eisenhower, as a military guy, had a very hierarchical chain of command. He really only interacted fa- directly with like three or four of his top right. advisors, right. and then everybody else filtered through those people in a very mm-hmm. top-down approach. Kennedy famously tried to execute also the hub and spokes model right. where lots of people had access to Kennedy and he preferred to be sort of the ringleader, <laughs> whether that would have uh, worked well had Kennedy continued on in his presidency. 
kind of remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, um, it certainly introduced a lot more bureaucratic infighting in the Kennedy White House than existed right. in the Eisenhower White House. Yeah. And Nixon uh, set up his White House, no surprise here for people who know anything about Nixon, to be very adversarial. He mm-hmm. literally pitted all of his agencies against each other and acted as the intermediary so that no one could trust anybody but him. Right. Um, and as trust is the most scarce commodity in the Nixon White House, um, he, he tried to monopolize that. It does make me wonder then, too, how uh, modern presidents like Obama, mm-hmm. like Trump, uh, are taking some of those same informational models, but also are dealing with um, a new technological information environment, right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. leaking and tweeting uh, become uh, much more prevalent. And ever since Watergate, leaking has become much more prevalent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and how that affects uh, the, how they control information and how they use information as a currency in the White House. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a question. Sorry, uh, but I think uh, no, I killed it. I killed it. Yeah, sorry. sorry. No. Um, uh, as far as far as far as how does all this uh, affect affect some of the information? I think uh, part of, part of this is just to say, um, I do think, and, and Trump even talked about this. I mean, that he wanted to have more of an adversarial mm-hmm. um, setup. So I think you know, harkening back, as you said, to the to the Nixon mm-hmm. um, methods. Uh, Part of, part of the issue, I think, in terms of the technology and leaks and things like that, is there's sort of a. Um, this this is this is some people have argued, um, I think, at least somewhat persuasively, um, that in many ways these are ways to try to reach the president. I mean, these mm-hmm. are um, what part of part of um, part part of what part of what this has introduced is sort of. Um, and I think I think this is sort of the the dark side of sort of having an adversarial system, is that basically if you're adversaries with others, then that means that you have to you know you can use other weapons, and these inf- these new information tools become the weapons of that um, mm-hmm. of that war, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's in some ways what we're seeing. Um, with the White House, where essentially it's it's now the case that rather than. Um, you know, the way to reach the president being obvious where I go and talk to him, where I go, um, where I try to go through John Kelly or whoever mm-hmm. else, you know, mm-hmm. is, is just directly above me in sort of the chain of command. Instead, you know, because I'm trying to undermine whoever else happens to be there, if I'm, um, you know, if I'm Scaramucci and I'm trying to undermine right. uh, Priebus or whatever, you know, <laughs> one of the ways to do that is to actually go directly to the media, is to, you know, use tweets right. or mm-hmm. um, an off-the-wall interview or whatever um, <laughs> as a way to, to actually make that happen mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. work my will. Um, so in some ways, I think even though it sort of looks, you know, in some, in some ways, I think we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, if we just think in terms of like, you know, if we're just sort of thinking rational choice um, in that sense, um, this is just a rational using of the materials at hand um, to sort of achieve your goals. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I don't think I don't think we should be surprised to see that. I think um, I think one of the things to sort of contrast with that um, is to think about the way that the Obama White House used the sort of the same environment. Um, okay. You know, we're not that far away. Mm-hmm. You know, we're only you know I guess we're closing in on two years, but you know we're not that far away from the Obama White House, and all mm-hmm. of the things that we're talking about now were present then as well. I mean, mm-hmm. the technology has not changed right. that dramatically over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way the Obama White House uh, tried to use 
um, these things was basically in a, in a constant coordinated effort to have a single message. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the usual way that at least modern White Houses have tried to approach these things. They always want to have, you know, Bush was famous for this. The second Bush was famous mm-hmm. for this. You have the talking points. Everybody mm-hmm. gets the talking mm-hmm. points every morning. Everybody goes out and says the exact same things no matter who they're talking to or what context they're right. in. Um, and so you're always just trying to drill home, like, here are the four or five things mm-hmm. that we want mm-hmm. everybody to be talking about today. Um, and the Obama White House in some ways did similar things where mm-hmm. they basically mm-hmm. said, here's here's a media campaign. We want our media, our Facebook page, our Twitter, everything else to be saying exactly the same right. thing, to be saying what we, you know, basically what is the core message of the White House. Um, and that was the way to sort of structure mm-hmm. their interaction with the media. Now we look at Trump. Um, and basically the lack of structure and the right. adversarialness means that there isn't a single set of talking points. There isn't a single mm-hmm. direction. And so what that means then is these, you know, like I said, these become the, the, the weapons, right? These, these, mm. these, these technologies are not tools in the hands of the president as much as they are weapons in the hands of the people in his administration who are trying to influence him. Mm-hmm. On the, can I vocab check you, Mitch? Sure. Um, you you threw out the term rational choice. Yeah. And much like using the word Beetlejuice, it now rears its ugly head when we have to describe what that means. <laughs> okay. What's rational choice for people who are listening? So rational choice is, is sort of a basic social science um, theory. In political science, sort of the simplest way to explain it is it just means that everyone does things with a certain set of goals in mind. Mm-hmm. So sort of the the... The technical definition might be to say that all actions are instrumental, is just to say that basically everything that you do, every action you take has some kind mm-hmm. of, is, is, is geared with some kind of goal in mind. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's instrumental in the sense that it's, it's a tool to get to where you want to be. Yes. Um, and so basically, in rational choice, the way to apply this is you basically you look at different people, different mm-hmm. actors or organizations, and you say, what are they trying to accomplish? What's their goal? Um, and once you know their goal, then you sort of try to work backwards and you say, okay, how can we use that knowledge of that goal then to understand um, what their um, why, why they took these actions to try right. to achieve that? And sometimes you'll look at it and you'll say that was dumb, like that, that mm-hmm. didn't help them achieve their goal. But usually if you're engaged in a rational choice right. analysis, you say, but I can understand why they did it. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you can say, um, you know, you might look at a particular Trump tweet, for example, and you might say, oh, that, that just did not accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. But then you can sort of say, well, but his goal was to sort of bring attention to whatever issue it happened to be. And did he do that? Well, yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can say, well, I can understand why he did it then. Yep. Um, yeah. And... So, yeah, so that's that's sort of the basics of rational choice. And one of the critiques if, is it's not literally true, right, in some right. sense, right? I mean, in, in and rational choice theorists will acknowledge this, right? I mean, yeah. that, of course, the world doesn't entirely work like that. And, in fact, right. when the president's tweeting at 4 a.m., he may not have any particular instrumental purpose. He may right. just be ticked about so-and-so's <laughs> tweet or what this person right. did to him or so forth. Um, but it's true enough, right, that it helps right. us understand the world well. Right. right. Um, and so by applying that, it helps us to say, Here's what's going on, even though there are certainly cases where, you know, you get angry and you just do something because you're angry and not to actually accomplish any particular purpose. Or tired or hungry. Or tired or hungry <laughs> right. or, you right, know, right, right. whatever other emotional or physical state you're in, right? right. Um, exactly. Yeah, rational choice works really well if we're all being coldly cognitive. Right. And, you know, if I'm, buy- if I'm buying a car, and rational that's the assumption, choice works really well cognitive. because um, yeah. buying a car is a pretty cold financial transaction. I'm comparing the relative... Uh, uh, attributes of every vehicle and picking the ones that match my preferences mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it leads to some weird mental gymnastics if you're in a less <laughs> co- less coldly rational environment. Mm-hmm. You end up saying like, well, why did you drop off this bag of groceries at the soup kitchen? The simpler explanation is, well, it's just the right thing to do. Right. But the... Uh, 
the the rational choice action has to be well. I extract some <laughs> kind of altruistic feeling of goodwill right. that makes right. me feel better about myself, and I want right. to feel better about myself. So it's rational for me to drop right. off these groceries right. uh, to get that hit of, of dopamine in my system, <laughs> right? Uh, or serotonin, sorry, in my, in my system, and, and so. Uh, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, this is where this is where the this, the theory kind of breaks down for mm-hmm. me. I think yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But no, the- and, I, and I and I agree with that. Um, I, I, I agree with all these critiques. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, I'm not sort of a straightforward rational choice um, person. But I think in this case, especially um, when we're mm-hmm. thinking about how mm-hmm. does the what's the nature of sort of the media. Um, in the Trump White House, I think if we sort of step back for a second and think about like what are what are the goals that people are trying to accomplish, and mm-hmm. what is sort of a rational mm-hmm. way then to try to achieve those goals yep. through the media, I think we mm-hmm. can see some pretty obvious um, mm-hmm. reasons for why we're seeing what what we're seeing in the White House. Right. Yeah. From that perspective, then, and this last, then we can transition to other other things. But for, as, a, as a rational choice perspective, one of the issues might be that people inside the Trump White House are experiencing uh, different sets of payoffs, mm-hmm. which is to say mm-hmm. that the kinds of things that make you successful inside the Trump White House yeah. might not be the kinds of things that make you successful outside the Trump White House. And I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. thinking about here about the very short 10-day tenure of one Mr. <laughs> Scaramucci, um, who gave a um, – what we, I guess Profanity we can say laced? is – What's that? Profanity-laced manic interview, <laughs> um, which led to his departure. Yeah. One could one could mm. hypothesize that Mr. Scaramucci's behavior maybe paid off pretty well inside the Trump White House. Hmm. Uh, garnered yeah. the right of it, the kind of attention that he needed. Garnered the kind of institutional leverage. Got the president's ear. Got the president to pay attention to him. Um, but outside the White House, this doesn't fly. And right, right. if Trump, if Trump's behavior and the and his reward system he set up for his advisors is really aberrant from the rest of society, we're going to keep running into this, right? Mm-hmm. He's, we're going to see John Kelly doing the kinds of things that would win him uh, payoffs in the out, outside the White House. But maybe that's not going to get him where he wants to be with mm-hmm. his clients, with President mm-hmm. Trump. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, just in terms of. Um, um, you know, just 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 once again to sort of think, just to sort of think. Um, you know, you have you have a sort of a principal agent, um, sort of conflicting principal agent problem here. So, um, you know, you think about, and then once again, so this is another mm-hmm. sort of basic political science idea. But basically, it's just the idea that every when you when you want someone, you, you can't do everything yourself, mm-hmm. and so you get someone else to do what you want that uh, to do. But this creates a problem because if you get someone else to do something, you're not sure if they're going to do it right or if they're going to do what they say they're going to do. So this creates all kinds of um, problems constantly where, um, you know, sort of a classic example, I think of this is, um, when president Obama's, when basically after the affordable care act was passed, president Obama presumably, um, hired a a digital firm to create a website. The website was a disaster when it first rolled out. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily, you know, it's not that president Obama was staying up late at night, punching in code (laughs) and did a bad job creating the white, creating the website. I really like that mental image. Right. Yeah. President Obama's just in the basement of the white house, just pounding away at the keyboard, just you know, that's what you know. So obviously we know that's not how he's spending his time. Um, but nonetheless, he's held accountable for that, yeah. um, even though he right. wasn't the one who actually, mm-hmm. you know, typed up all the code um, because he's considered the person who's responsible. But this is a right. sort of classic mm-hmm. principal agent problem because President Obama is the principal, got an agent. He got mm-hmm. these, mm-hmm. This, you know, these people to make the to make the website and they didn't do a right. good job. Um, so I think uh, getting back then to President Trump, um, 
I think what you're getting at is to say that basically there are sort of there's two conflicting principles. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. there's President Trump as a principal who's hiring these people. He wants them to behave in a certain way, but then there's also right. the American people and um, and the media and other type ways that we could slice um, slice this up. And mm-hmm. what did they expect um, from these people? And I think um, that's where that's where sort of this tension is: is who do these people serve? Who right. are they? Um, who are they accountable to? And, and sometimes the answer is both. They're accountable mm-hmm. to both Trump and the American people. And, that's and they'd be rewarding differently. In those right. Two. And so, you know, so if you look at somebody like Scaramucci, he's, um, yeah, he's, he's sort of caught in these crosswinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do we want to transition and talk a little bit about what you teased last time, Chris, with the <laughs> idea of tyranny? I mean, like we've talked about all sure. this chaos and all these problems. I mean, there's certainly this unprecedented level of turnover um, in the Trump administration. And you know, we said we should talk about tyranny, but we should have our political theorist here. And he is back <laughs> um, out of the Southwest skies, right. yes. um, whatever they're called. And um, maybe just, Mitch, I mean, does this, are, are we on a path to tyranny? Is this a problem? And maybe even starting with the basics, since we're making you define all these political science terms, um, how do we think about even this idea of tyranny in, in a classical sense? Right. So one of the things that we were thinking about, and, and I know you all talked about this last time, it was sort of fortuitous, but um, um, yeah. <laughs> um, immediately immediately following that... Um, um, why am I blanking on his name? Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan, of course. And, uh, I was like thinking it in my mind, and then it's like it's gone. Okay, so you got a great first deer, name. Deer in the headlights here. Anyway, so um, anyway, Andrew Sullivan um, published a piece, uh, basically like the next day. Um, yep. That was a follow up. Um, He's on, a devoted podcast listener, we're sure. Right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so just, just a, not to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he loves the genre. Yeah. So Andrew That's Sullivan totally right. um, was is a fairly famous. Um, uh, columnist for, uh, and who eventually sort of pioneered in some ways the independent and, and, and uh, doing an independent blog, mm-hmm. um, and it actually became such a burden to him. He basically had a mental and physical breakdown um, because it was just so yep. much work trying to maintain, and so he stopped doing that. And now he's more writing um, uh, things as he wants to, uh, yep. as opposed to being constant. But anyway, mm-hmm. all that is to say, he's somebody who's fairly well known as a public um, intellectual. He was. Um, he's he's written a number of fairly influential pieces, and a few months back, I can't remember exactly when he wrote um, an article that basically said, uh, if, the, if I'm getting the title right, it was basically America has never been more ripe for tyranny. Um, and essentially, it was actually during the campaign. It was during the campaign. That's right. Yeah, it, was, when, it, was, it was before when Trump was about to get the nomination. Um, so like May of sixteen or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this was this was before Trump um, at least was solidly on the path to the White House. Right. Um, right. And uh, so, what makes America ripe for tyranny? So, okay, so yeah, so all this, so all this comes back then. Um, and so, so just to, just to sort of say what, so, so he wrote a follow up to basically say um, that he felt that the Trump administration had actually entered a second stage of tyranny. So, all right, so that's sort of the teaser there. <laughs> so, like, like Pokemon, it's evolved. It's got right, yeah. Nice <laughs> Pokemon form. has evolved. Yeah, okay. that's good. Um, well, and he kind of grounds this in Plato, right? I mean, when right, you did that original exactly. article, yeah. Um, so. so maybe it's useful for our listeners just to briefly sort of say what does Plato say in the Republic. Because that's really right. what Sullivan's hearkening back to, right? So, so essentially, so essentially, when uh, what Sullivan uh, is arguing is, he basically says, um, when we think about tyranny, what we ought to be thinking about is, well, first of all, I guess we have to take, sort of take a step back and say, what do we think the state ought to be accomplishing? Mm-hmm. And so, if we say, what does it mean to have right. a good state or a good politics? And for Plato, this means that uh, to be 
completely oversimplistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially what this means is that you have the right kind of people ruling. Mm-hmm. And the right mm-hmm. kind of people ruling are the kinds of people who will consider the common good. They're the right. people who will not be um, have motives that are self-interested. They are people who will be focused on um, sort of the long-term good and mm-hmm. will have some sort of technical expertise. Okay. Um, so those are all sort of things that Plato wants to see in good rulers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for those of you who are familiar with the Republic, you know, these are the guardians, right? These are people right. who have been, right. who've basically spent, you know, scholars differ a little bit, but it sounds like, well, Plato specifically says, actually, um, that basically you should spend about 50 years getting educated um, before you actually take <laughs> up the guardianship. So you should be okay. that level of expert. It's shocking um, we don't have this model in the real place. I know, world. I know. Why don't, why don't we just <laughs> specifically train our leaders for 50 right, years to be right. leaders? Anyway, at any rate... Um, so, so that's the kind of thing. And, of course, Plato arguably recognizes that this isn't realistic. I mean, you get to the end of Book 9, and he kind of says this can't exist on Earth, maybe. Right. Anyway, yeah. I don't want to get into all that. After but I spent, like, all these books After I spent all these it. books describing <laughs> it. But at any rate, what, what, he, what he's what – he's, but the point is these are sort of the ideals that, that right. Plato is thinking of. Right. And, to many, and in many ways, we still hold those ideals. Plato's mm-hmm. ideals are still ideals that in many ways we hold up. We think often think our leaders should have techno expertise. They should be interested in the common good. They shouldn't be just interested in mm-hmm. sort of their own mm-hmm. self-enrichment. Um, so those are all sort of things that we, that we continue to hold up as ideals of right. justice or ideals of, of good statecraft. Um, so what Sullivan, so what Plato then does is he goes through a series of sort of degradations of regimes. And so you sort of think about how could this fall apart? And the final degradation is from democracy to tyranny. Right. Mm. And essentially what happens at that point in democracy, what Plato argues is what degrades is statecraft becomes less about what's good for the common good and is focused on the desires of the individuals who are within that state. So if you think about a democracy, everybody gets to vote. And so what is everybody interested in? Well, they're interested in what's good for for them, their own self-interest. Mm-hmm. And so the state then becomes governed not so much by what's good for the common good or what's good sort of in the long term. It becomes what's good for me right now. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, Plato's pretty, you know, he's, he's, he's he, this is fairly insightful. I mean, I think if mm-hmm. we look at mm-hmm. democracy, whether you think democracy is good or bad, um, you know, that seems to be pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, that democracy loses something about this sort of devotion to the common good um, as soon as you start to allow people to vote because people are self-interested. Right. Um, and there's... You know, without getting into democratic theories, whether that's good or bad, you know, that's just a mm-hmm. fact. That's just the way it works. Right. Um, so what Plato argues then is he says once that sort of gets underway, um, eventually people will lose track of what are the most important desires. So they will lose track of whether this is something that's really important to desire or whether this is something that's just frivolous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is this something that is actually needed by people in a society? You know, is this, you know bridges and roads and whatever else we actually need in a society, or is this something that's just, you know, something we'd like to have, but we don't actually need? Um, And he says eventually what this will lead to is he said someone will eventually rise up who promises the people um, everything they want, anything they want, and will eventually use that promise to accumulate all power. They'll basically point out the inefficiencies of democracy for achieving their desires, which I Mm -hmm. think all of us can sort of experience. We look at democracy and we say, it doesn't work, right? right? You know, I don't get right. the desired outcomes that I want from democracy. And so mm-hmm. what will happen eventually is someone will come along and say, I can give you all the desired outcomes that you want. I can give you everything you want uh, if you will give me total control, if right. you will give me all the power and 
you know, stop checking me and basically mm-hmm. just let me do what I want. And so that's essentially what gives rise to tyranny. You have this person who promises to fulfill everybody's desires. And so what Sullivan describes then is he says, maybe this is what Trump has done. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. Trump came in and said, I will fulfill all your desires. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can sort of think about his campaign promises. He promises he's not going to, for example, reduce entitlements. He promises, in fact, that he might even expand them. He promises right. he's going to um, not raise taxes. He promises that he's not going to, uh, or in fact, that he promises he's going to cut taxes. <laughs> he promises did. he's going to make things more efficient. Mm-hmm. He promises mm-hmm. he's going to, um, you know, be able to make all of these things get better. And in fact, even during the campaign, I mean, many of his most ardent supporters said, yeah, he promises everything. We don't actually think he's going to be able to deliver on it, but right. we don't care. Um, you know, but, you know, maybe he'll give us some of it. Right. And right. essentially what Sullivan argues is that Trump, by in, in, in basically entering in his first year in office, essentially did what Plato describes the tyrant as doing, right. basically trying to give everybody what they want. And so the most classic example being um, the tax cut. So right. This is a tax cut that basically is um, in some ways a free tax cut because nothing else was cut. Right. You basically cut taxes mm-hmm. and it's unfunded because then you don't reduce government spending in any way. So this just becomes pure debt, right. basically, that the government is taking on. Um, and so Trump does this, and then the second step <laughs> right. that Plato describes is what is described as the purge, yep. where essentially what the tyrant does is they remove everybody around them in the government who is in any way disloyal or might have some kind of allegiance to anything other than the tyrant themselves. And mm-hmm. so what eventually happens with the tyrant in Plato's description is they actually purge out most people who are regular citizens even of the republic because mm-hmm. what they want are people who are purely tied to them. So they bring in people who are former slaves, for example, who will be loyal to the tyrant because they've just been freed, right. or they bring in people who are even foreigners, people who don't have any allegiance to the republic itself. They just have allegiance to the person who brought them right. in to be sort of governors with the, with the tyrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially then what Sullivan argues in, in, his argue, in his article is that what we're seeing in these massive purges is essentially uh, President Trump purging out anybody who doesn't have some kind of direct loyalty to him or who might feel a stronger loyalty to the American people than they do to the president themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you sort of see this, for example, with thinking about purging out McMaster. So mm-hmm. somebody who, um, you know, has controversial policy positions, but nonetheless is well known for being somebody who is a patriot first. Um, right. And being replaced with somebody like Pompeo, who, by all accounts, seems to be much more of a loyal foot soldier for the president as opposed to being completely loyal to the American people. Um, and mm-hmm. so when you look at these sort of um, purges, Sullivan argues, he says this is essentially the second stage um, in just the, the march towards tyranny as described by, um, by Plato. So anyway, yeah. that's a long explanation, um, but essentially what uh, the sort of the wrap up to that is, you know, what the what the outcome then of mm-hmm. tyranny is, is that essentially there is no freedom. The the leader, right. the tyrant becomes able to do, you know, uh, ungoverned in their use of power. They're able to use power in whatever they, they want, whatever way they want. Um, you know, they can use power in any arbitrary s- ways mm-hmm. that they see fit. Um and so Sullivan argues that perhaps this is exactly what President Trump wants. He seems to chafe under any kind of limits um, to his power. He seems to feel that any time um, the law gets involved, um, that it shouldn't apply to him. So, um, or even beyond the law, if we just think about you know customs and things that are often used to hold the president accountable. I mean, things as small as like not you know releasing the taxes so that we know what kind of conflicts of interest the president might mm-hmm. have, um, right. and things like that. Even those kinds of things, the president has wanted to to sort of brush aside. To say nothing, right. of course, of um, the investigation into um, potential um, Russian collusion and things like that, and the um, you know President Trump's disregard or 
even war against, um, in some ways, uh, mm-hmm. Mueller's investigation, which is you know the classic example of somebody who's um, trying to enforce the rule of law for the protection of the American people from arbitrary power. Right. I guess I mean, and I, I get all that, and I think you know Sullivan makes a good case both in his initial 2016 article about sort of you know laying out this platonic kind of framework, and then you know in the follow up saying like, look, it seems to fit, right? The theory. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I, I buy that. I'm just I'm still not sure as an American if I'm convinced we're, or as a political scientist, right, mm-hmm. that we're heading toward tyranny for a yeah. couple of reasons. And I'm curious to see what Sam and Chris think about this, too. But um, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is I'm not sure Trump is a very efficient tyrant. Like, I mean, yeah. I think I think a tyrant needs to be able to focus a little bit more in some ways than he he is. He does. And so, I mean, having you know studied some tyrants down through history, right, it seems to me that they were much more focused personalities. So in that sense, Trump's personality maybe serves us well. He may have a tyrannical soul in Plato's terms, but I'm not sure he's going to be able to exercise sort of a political tyranny. Um, and those may be different things. The other thing is, I mean, if we a have venal, a system. What's that? He's a venal tyrant. Right. Maybe a venal tyrant. Right? But um, the other thing is that we have an American system that uh, um, is, of course, designed particularly to help us avoid the problem of tyranny. Um, yes. It's designed, designed um, to harm government efficiency in a way. It's not very efficient. It's got lots of kind of redundancies, but it is very much designed to protect us from tyranny. This may be its ultimate test. I, I don't know, right? But um, but it strikes me that because of that system, um, it seems like this is unlikely to degenerate into actual tyranny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. I think one is... I just, you know, Trump, there's no degree, there's only, he only goes so far in exercising arbitrary power, right? I mean, like, there's still moments where the, the Congress can check, even though they've shown limited willingness to do that. Um, he's term limited, right? And even if he agitates about how, you know, it's great that Xi Jinping is, you know, making his term unlimited, um, he can't do that in the United States system, right? People on the Republican side were worried about Obama doing this, right? And that was just never a viable option. It's not a viable option now either, right? So, you know, he's he's gone by at the latest January 20th of 2025, and and then we pick up these pieces and you know move forward into the, whatever the next administration is. Um, so there's that piece. But then um, there's just also, I think, I suspect there's ultimately a line, even for this Congress, that, that can't be crossed. I'm not sure where it is. I'm not sure how far down the line it is. Um, but I think that at some point um, they would challenge him. So I'm, I'm also just a little skeptical that even though I, I buy the, the argument of Sullivan that you're laying out to a degree, I think that there's maybe ultimately... You know, uh, you can't cross this line. Well, okay, so, here, here'd be a question that I have. Um, and this, um, if the if the argument in 2016 was you said that that, that was titled "America is Right for Tyranny," right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you have uh, when you have a figure like our current president, does that if if, if, if there's not a six, this is a weird phrasing but a successful <laughs> sort of move to tyranny does that then make us less ripe or is this is this a move to say like well that sort of work i mean I'm, I'm also wondering yeah. like, like what's yeah. the next thing like what right. are the right. and th- right. this and i remember thinking this um and i probably said this on the podcast before the election but also thinking about like what are i think as as americans and as just as human beings we often don't learn the best lessons we learn lessons but we don't always learn the right lessons from things like like what are the yep. lessons yep. that are being learned from the 2016 campaign or being learned from this administration mm-hmm. um and does that should we be more afraid of what comes next even? Mm-hmm. yeah uh i i guess i think and i think in terms in sullivan's especially his initial articles terms i think that's exactly the thing that we should be worried about mm-hmm. um because right. i think T- sullivan's argument the his initial argument in the 
is America's never been more ripe, um, would agree with that. I think, in fact, I think, and I think Andy's right to, um, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of what he just said in terms of, I, I agree that I'm not sure that Trump is able, it would be able to pull, completely pull this off. Um, in terms of in terms of moving fully into you know a tyranny in Plato's sense, um, but I agree with that. I think one of the worries is what does all of you know, you know one of the things that Sullivan is worried about is you know the fact that the digital age essentially sort of magnifies this focus on desires for individuals, right. Right. where basically individuals are we're constantly focused on what is going to make me feel good right now, mm-hmm. and as we've mm-hmm. seen even with some of the latest science and stuff like that with coming out about Facebook and social media, part of the reason that we use it is it gives us constant, you know, I don't remember the psychology, whatever dopamine or whatever <laughs> serotonin or whatever, yeah, whatever. Yeah, little, yeah, little, yeah, you get a little, little of happiness, right? You get this little hit in your brain, right? And so, yeah. you know, what that constantly conditions us for is to think about what, how can I get my desires fulfilled right this second? And so, as we sort of condition ourselves, you know, willingly in this sense, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for this sort of mindset, um, that makes us more and more ripe. Um, for tyranny because we're not thinking in sort of the big terms of like right. what's in the interest of the common good what's in the interest of sort of the long-term good for you know our country and our countrymen or what is what is the place of expertise you know we're not thinking mm-hmm. in those mm-hmm. terms when we think mm-hmm. about politics we're just thinking about what's good what's going to make me feel good right this second right. and if you think about the way that even trump himself governs i mean that's many in many ways exactly what he's focused on he doesn't care um and he would even tell you in many ways that he doesn't right. care what uh, about policy 10 steps down the line. He even says like, he doesn't care about these details. Mm -hmm. What he cares Mm -hmm. about is about making people feel good about what he's saying right this second. That's why the tweets matter. The tweets matter because it makes Mm -hmm. his supporters feel good right now because he's made somebody mad because he's said the thing that they've always wanted to say, things like that. So it's all all about this sort of constant, you know, the dopamine hit, um, the sort of fulfilling desires in the moment. Can I ask a psychology question since none of you are psychologists? Um, <laughs> Chris well, is a political Chris, psychologist. Chris, Chris is political That's psychology. True. He's what passes for a And I'm not sure. I'm not, and, and this is maybe an <laughs> un, we can file this under unanswerable question. But thinking about how do we get to focusing on long-term over short-term? Because I could be convinced mm-hmm. that to say – you know, an older person might be more inclined to think about short term because their term is shorter. Mm-hmm. But I could also be convinced to say, well, an older person is maybe thinking more about legacy. So they mm-hmm. they might be more inclined to think long term. And in the same way, a young person, I, I mean, we I think we if we think about a stereotype of a young person, we think, well, they're they're thinking about the now very often. Right. Although they're also the people who have a long term. So right. so like like right. what makes us think about long term is what's the right. Yeah, how, how do we how do we get to thinking about that, or what leads us to or? or I, I have bad news. Uh, regardless <laughs> of your age, no one's particularly good about thinking in the long term. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we often have to trick ourselves. And so we're screwed. Are, <laughs> we're well, just no, not necessarily. Um, Possibly. It's actually fairly simple to get someone to think more about the long term, but we have to be intentional about it. And oftentimes we it's it's simple. Um, uh, simple debiasing tricks. So here's something you can try. If you're um, struggling with an impulse purchase, uh, one of the questions that will help you control your perhaps impulsive purchasing tendencies is to say, how will I feel about owning this item uh, 10 years from now? At the end of the life cycle, if it's a pair of shoes or if it's a, you know, if it's a, a book or whatever, how will I feel about owning this 10 years from now? And that um, has a real uh, – thinking through how I'll feel with adding a decade to my life, what I'll be doing at that point, how will my life be different, how old my, will my 
kids be like mm-hmm. what will I be doing how will that make me feel about this that that perspective shifting has a tendency to cause us to think about things in terms of long-term perspectives. Uh, it works really well for getting employees to think about saving for their retirement, contributing to their own 401k plans, um, showing people what the outcomes will be if they take incremental steps along the mm-hmm. way is reasonably effective getting people to think in the long terms. The issue is uh, in politics, we're not particularly good um, at getting people to do that because it's neither in the candidate's interests to get us to think in the long term, usually, nor is it in voters' interests to want to stop and think about what the consequences of, of, of the long-term decisions might be. Mm-hmm. Yep. The other thing, too, that I think plays in with like why it's not in their interest is um, you know, the American political system, we have a two-party system. We switch back and forth, right? And so there's, I think, very much this sort of, like, grab what you can while you're in power sure. mentality. Even though people want to say, like, oh, we'll get in power and we'll hold it because we're so good and our ideas are so superior. It never really happens, right? I mean, like, the Democrats will be back in power at some point um, in, you know, maybe sooner, maybe later, right? Um, and people kind of know that. And so it's like, well, if we're in there now, we're going to push our things, right? And we're going to try to get get benefits for our people, right? I mean, like, and... I hate to be crass about it because in, in one sense they want to say this is for the good of all Americans, but the reality is, you know, it's it's it tends to be more for the good of the parties in power that's in power and the, the people that support them. Um, they tend to disproportionately look out for the interest of those those voters, um, which again, there's a real self interest component there. I have one more question. I think we probably need to need to break. Wrap it up, <laughs> but. What we've talked today about tyranny, we've talked about the potential for um, Donald Trump to be a tyrant. What I have taken away from listening to Mitch and listening to Andy on this question (laughs) is that um, I'm kind of in the Goldilocks spot. Um, uh, Andrew Sullivan seems to be (laughs) suggesting that uh, Donald Trump is too hot. Um, that the, 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 we're ripe for tyranny. Andy's uh, rebuttal is perhaps that it's too cold. So I'm going to be the Goldilocks of doom and suggest that it's just <laughs> right. Um, in all seriousness, if, if Trump is not a particularly good tyrant because of his own personality quirks, and, right. uh, he's certainly not a particularly good Democrat in the in the right. small D sense. Right. But he's um, but he's probably not going to div- take America away from a democratic system of government. Right. What what he does, what I'm taking away from you all, is that he sets the stage for someone else in the future to do that. Right. Um, if Trump weakens norms of democracy and weakens yep. norms of of democratic accountability, someone who is more savvy and manipulating things towards tyranny might have an easier time because those norms have been eroded. It's, so it really is about who comes next yeah. and who comes after them. Yeah. And I, one bit of evidence to suggest that that might be the case is um, I was looking at some polling numbers since our last um, mm-hmm. since our since our last conversation, guys. And I have some good news and some bad news about how Americans feel about democracy. <laughs> um, you want the bad news first, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So in 1996, uh, the General uh, Social Survey asked Americans, um, how proud are you of the way democracy works in America? So this isn't quite mm-hmm. saying, do you support democracy? But it's right. asking, mm-hmm. how proud of you are, are you of democracy? Um, 79% of Americans said that they were proud of democracy in America in 1996. Of course, wow. that's um, right at the beginning of Bill Clinton's uh, second term. Uh, 16% were not proud. And as you might expect, because Bill Clinton was in power, uh, well, actually, no. It's um, more Democrats were not proud 
than Republicans were not proud. So Republicans were more proud of democracy. Even that was right after the, re- the takeover of Congress in 94, right? So That could be too. So, yeah. That could be too. So that could be too. There's a high time um, for Republicans. The numbers actually get even better by 2002. Now, again, 2002 is right after 9-11. We have a huge wave of patriotism in the United States. But only 9% of Americans said that they weren't proud of the way democracy was working. 90% were proud. The way democracy was working. Those numbers basically hold consistent uh, through 2004. Uh, by 2014, uh, just a couple years ago, the uh, the numbers have basically reverted back to their 1996 numbers. So 74% of Americans were proud of the way democracy works. Um, 18% were not proud. So again, uh, three out of every four Amer- more than three out of every four Americans were proud of how democracy works. Those numbers have uh, declined substantially. A majority of Americans are still proud of how America of how democracy works. Sixty three percent, as a, this is an October twenty seventeen poll. Sixty three percent are still proud of how democracy works, but thirty six percent, double what it was uh, in twenty fourteen, are no longer proud of how democracy works. No surprise, uh, more Democrats uh, than Republicans are not proud of how democracy is working. Uh, that's a partisan thing. But even the number of Republicans now who aren't proud of how democracy works exceeds uh, the national average in any previous year's survey that I just mm-hmm. described. Mm-hmm. So it's not breaking on completely on partisan lines. Right. Um, something like 24, 25% of Republicans aren't proud of how democracy is working. So Americans are less proud. Does that mean they're less supportive? That's the bad news, guys. Okay. Here's the good news. Uh, generally, not just in the United States, but across the world, uh, among in democratic regimes, support for democracy remains quite high. Um, globally, uh, this right. is a po- this is a poll from um, also from October of this last year. Um, globally, uh, amongst dem- countries that have democratic systems, seventy eight percent support democracy. Only seventeen percent think it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Going down to the United States. Um, only uh, 7% of Americans would be willing right now to consider a non-democratic option as our governance. So a monarchy or a tyranny or something like you guys were talking about. Of the 86% who aren't willing to consider non-democratic, 40% are firmly committed to democracy. 46% are somewhat less committed to democracy, but it's at least the best choice of of alternatives, Mm -hmm. right? So um, overall... Support for democracy. So, uh, there, there's not this big, huge groundswell of people clamoring for a, t- a tyrant. Seven percent, mm-hmm. though, is nothing to sneeze at. Um, although that is small compared to a yeah. number of European countries. For example, in Spain, seventeen percent are willing to consider a non-democratic option. Right. In the UK, ten percent are willing to consider a non-democratic option. In Hungary, fifteen percent are willing right. to consider a non-democratic option. So we're we're well below some of our, our European yeah. comparison groups. And those numbers get even higher in uh, in Latin America and, and in Africa and elsewhere. So the good news is America seems still well committed, at least verbally, to the notion of democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that's the key, right? I mean, like the if if tyranny comes, right, it will come in the guise of democracy. I mean, and this is maybe a teaser for where we're going to be going in our next podcast. Um, but, I mean, you can think of the, the fall of the Republic, right, in Star Wars, right? I mean, you can think of how Palpatine <laughs> does it. And there's, there's this quote, I mean, those generally, um, you know, terrible prequels, right, that I don't really like all that much. Um, but in, in those, there, there's kind of a great quote by um, 
um, by Padme, right? And then she's in the Senate, and they give all power. They vote to give all this power to Palpatine, right? Who's like, I will relinquish it when, you know, I've restored order, which, of course, never quite happens, right? Um, and she says, so this is how democracy dies, to thunderous applause, right? And and I think, um, you know, it w- it'll happen democratically if it does, right? And it'll be more about certain parts of the government saying, we're going to abdicate this power. And we've, and we've done some of that, right? I mean, like Congress doesn't legislate to the degree that they once did and to the degree they ought to. We've replaced a lot of that with governance by executive order, right? So there's already been a little bit of what I would call slippage. That doesn't mean we're tyrannical. I don't think we are. Um, but but you can sort of see how that could happen, right? So uh, I think if, if a tyrant were to take over in a lot of these countries that you've just mentioned, Chris, I mean, you would have to be a democratic takeover, and it would be still with the... Um, the cloak of democracy, if you will, right? Everything mm-hmm. would be done in the name of the people um, and by the will of the people. Um, it, but it would it would sort of eviscerate the reality of of true, like sort of democratic um, right. governance. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to sort of use a historical example, I mean that's exactly how the Roman Republic mm-hmm. fell as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Roman Republic. Oh, fine. Do s- historical instead of right. fantasy. Well, yeah. But I mean, but essentially, <laughs> I mean, essentially, obviously, Star Wars is riffing on the fall of the, of the right. Roman it Republic. Is. I mean, it essentially, is. it's. You know, um, the the emperors don't arise simply by some kind of full blown hostile takeover. They arise because the Senate um, votes to put them in power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And guys, I have one more piece of good news. Yes, we're saving the republic. <laughs> you right. and I, all, all right. four of us, we are. are saving the republic right now. Here's <laughs> the deal: uh, the same Pew survey that I just quoted to you finds that people with more education mm-hmm. also tend to be more supportive of democracy than people with less education. <laughs> all right. So here's the, here's the numbers. Yeah, they also in, tend to be Jedis because I was kind of hoping when you said <laughs> we were going to save the Republic, were you going to start training us? Or? Um, yeah. Well, train. I'm about to go train some students. So okay. here's the deal. Um, people, who have, people who have an education level one standard deviation below the average, right? So these are people probably with less than high school education. Um, Twenty in the United States, twenty-four uh, percent believe that military rule would be a good way to run the country. Mm-hmm. In contrast, people with a level of education yep. one standard deviation above the average, so these are people with with at least some college education, maybe maybe a degree, suggest that only seven percent think that a military uh, military rule would be a good way to run the country. So mm-hmm. something happens about the in the process of getting more education, which is we become more committed to the American Civic Project. We become more committed to democracy and uh, to the democratic experiment. And I think that's something that we should hang our uh, proverbial hats on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you take, I mean, when you take courses in introduction to comparative politics, to shamely, shamelessly advertise here for a second, right? <laughs> which you and are offering about, next fall. <laughs> which I will be offering next fall um, at 11.10 on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, but when you do that, right, w- I mean, w- and w- you w- start w- hearing w- about w- military w- regimes that kind of, you know, take people they disagree with and toss them out of airplanes over the ocean without parachutes, right? Um, then, you know, you start becoming a little less enthused about the idea of sort of granting power to um, an organization whose main qualification is knowing how to kill people really efficiently, right? And yeah. um, and so, yeah, I think that, you know. <laughs> and also then when you look at how, how it's worked out in practice in terms of governance, it turns out you get more human rights abuses and not, in the end, better governance. Um, so you sacrifice something and gain a whole lot of nothing. So could we do a search and replace on the Bethel catalog and just take out the word teach and replace it with saving the republic? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so the Washington Post replaced their, their tagline with democracy dies in the dark. So I feel like it's like a little bit of a little bit of histrionics might be useful here. Um, <laughs> That's right. Bethel University saving the republic. <laughs> That's right. That's right.
Well, who's, who, who in this room is on sabbatical and has time for such a project? That's right. right. <laughs> I'm the only one not saving. It is on, apparently ahead of schedule from what I, I am, hear. Yes. So. <laughs> well, let me let me wrap us up here, but let me also give a brief plug. We uh, there's never we've discovered there's never a slow news season uh, in American politics and for election shock therapy, but we can't resist delving into a little bit of silliness here. So over the next couple of weeks and and maybe even the next couple of months, we're also in addition to exploring the real world of politics, we're going to be exploring some fake worlds of politics uh, which, which might be able to inform the real world of politics oh, yes. right. okay. exactly yes. Yeah. yes this isn't just flights of fancy so those of you who are not sci-fi nerds or fantasy nerds uh, you might still want to tune in for this oh, gonna uh, we're going to be talking about um, how politics exists and is um, and is badly portrayed in uh, film franchises and movie franchises like Star Wars Lord of the Rings uh, the Chronicles of Narnia uh, Harry Potter yep. and Game a number of Thrones, Star, Star Thrones, Trek, Star Trek. Cool. And some, and possibly some others if I can get these guys on board with it. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, I have that- a question, actually. So are, are you recommending as <laughs> listeners um, and uh, that as listeners we go back and watch all the Star Wars movies to prep for next time? If you're on sabbatical. I, if you're on yes. sabbatical, like Professor yes. Mulberry is, uh, spending a couple afternoons uh, skimming through the uh, the Star Wars uh, oeuvre is in, probably not in, a in, in, all, in all honesty, if you were going to say these would be two worth watching to prep for this, what would be two episodes to watch? Ooh, good question. Of uh, the Star Wars? Because yeah. hmm. that's the that's the first one we're going to dive into, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the movies that feature politics most prominently are also some of bad. the worst that's movies. Okay. The worst movies. Yeah. 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 Um, but honestly, uh, politics figures prominently in episodes one and three. Which yeah, prequels. one and three. Okay. And to a lesser extent, four. I mean, yes. in the originals. Um, okay. Yeah. But actually, the most recent uh, Star Wars movie, um, um, Last Jedi, Last Jedi, has a yeah. decent amount of politics in it as okay. well. Yeah, I expect we'll talk more about the earlier, but yeah, we might. Yep. Especially since we don't really know where Last Jedi is going yet. That's oh, issue. I have I, I have speculation. Okay. I have some fan fiction I've been working on that might. Uh, oh boy! <laughs> and on that, we'll note, save that. I'd like to thank all my colleagues here at Bethel University and their fan fiction. Um, <laughs> you can always email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail dot com. Thanks for listening. On behalf of my colleagues, this is Chris Moore saying, "Go Royals."